Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claybury, your host, and with me today is your other co-host, Y Lu. Hey, Y. Hey, Sean. How you doing? Hey, is it summer there yet? It is, but it's, it's still pretty cold. <laughs> like, I, I don't know why. Yeah, it's just had a really cold summer this year, so it's been raining every day. So nice, nice. I actually uh, we've got snow on the ground here, so I actually used my my snowblower for the first time the other day. So. Yeah, and, uh, definitely. It gets cold here, but it, does, it never gets that cold. Like we might have like maybe fifteen minutes of snow every couple of years, but it never kind of stays on the ground. I think, so. <laughs> so your kids know what snow is? They've actually seen snow. Uh, yeah, we, we can go to the like about three hours away. We can go to the mountains and kind of oh. go to the snow. I've taken them there a few times, but oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, all right. Let's bring in our guest. Let's welcome Brian Gorman. Welcome, Brian. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey. Oh, not a problem. Glad to have you. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Brian? You know, what you do, who you work for, and how you got into development? Sure. Yeah, so I started out as a, actually a VB6 developer way back in the day, late 90s, early 2000. And then uh, .NET, VB.NET was kind of the transition at the time. And then ultimately, very quickly moved into C Sharp. I was in uh, computer science at Iowa State University, and we did C++ there. So super familiar with the, the typical syntax you'd see in Java, C++ or C Sharp, the bracket-based syntax. And so I much preferred that over the uh, VB6, VB.net, kind of a looser syntax. So it was I wish cool. they would have taught me that in, in college. You know, when I went to college, my first class was Pascal. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then COBOL and Fortran. Yeah, I had Fortran 77 back in the day when yeah. I was in engineering at Iowa State. Yeah. So that was a fun class. Boy, let me tell you. My, my university was so poor that they couldn't even afford Visual Studio. So I didn't I didn't like use debugger until I got to my first job. And I was like, oh my God, I can like stop at every line. This is amazing. Like, instead of writing console.write line, you know, like. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so like JavaScript programming, basically. We yeah, just yeah, console.output or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I uh, I did .NET development then for quite a few years, actually. I just recently stopped doing full-time development. Uh, let's see what that would have been, uh, 2020. So just last year. And then I went into full-time training. So I'm doing technical training now, and I run my own company at the current moment. It's called Major Guidance Solutions. And I do technical training, usually around the Azure space or some .NET development things. I have courses on Udemy or whatever as well. So that kind of thing. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there. And we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. How do you, how do you get into that? Like, do you just kind of like look at the curriculum one day and just go, okay, I know everything here and then just kind of write a course about it? Like, or, or, or have you kind of basically been teaching people all along? And it's like, 
I want to do that full time. Yeah. So I think I used to commute from Ames to Des Moines and I think it was like uh, 2004 to 2006, somewhere in there. So I was commuting and I was talking about how much I would much rather just train and then actually be under the gun of being a developer even way back then. So I kind of realized early on that I had an aptitude for it and I liked it, but I kept obviously developing because I love developing too. And you don't just jump into training. So then I actually got a job as a computer science instructor with Franklin University. And so I did that. Well, I'm still technically on the adjunct staff there. I haven't trained, run a course for a while. I would like to get back into that here pretty soon, but did a lot of data structures and algorithm programming in uh, Java with Franklin University. So that was a lot of fun too. And Java and C Sharp, I know people want to fight about what language is better, but at the end of the day, find what you like and do it. Obviously, I prefer .NET personally, but that doesn't mean you don't have to use it, but I'd promote it. Anyway, I imagine one of those nice things about doing training and doing that full time is you don't really never have to deal with technical debt. Uh, you're not dealing with old projects oh. that, you, that are just kind of sitting around that you're working on. And uh, it's like, ah, I need to update that. Oh, no. To do that. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case at all. It's actually worse, I think, in training because I created a course on Udemy. And in fact, I just I just redid my entire MVC course because the whole thing was done. I actually did it in, I think I started it in 2014-ish, 2015-ish. And so I had it in .NET 4 at the time. Uh, .NET 4.8 or 4.7.2, I guess, was the last release I did the course for. And here we're we're now on .NET 6. So when .NET 5 rolled out, I, I did a quick pseudo update, just getting you into Visual Studio 2019 and telling you, hey, you can still use the old .NET framework. And you still can even today. But the new course is now, of course, targeting .NET 6. And guess what I get to do next year? Redo it for .NET 7, probably. <laughs> so is it competitive, you think? Because like, I mean, I go on Udemy, um, and there's so many people having courses about everything, really. Sure. So yeah. uh, I'm guessing there's a pressure to always continually update your courses to be the latest and greatest so people will buy your courses. Yeah, so it is, it, it's much more competitive now than it was when I first started. I, I got into Udemy very early. I was looking for that. And actually, it was through Franklin University when I was teaching the computer science course. What I found training online, people not in the same room and then, you know, trying to take a college level computer science course from home and having a book to read and an instructor for one or two hours a week. Boy, that's tough. So I, what I decided to do was make a series of videos to coincide with the course. So back to your question, what got me, you know, how do I, how did I do this? Yes. I, there was a pre-built curriculum around data structures and algorithms. What I did was took some of that and made it into this Java course that I did on Udemy. And then ultimately, obviously from there, I moved into more of the .NET courses because that's, again, my bread and butter. All the professional jobs I've ever had have been in .NET. And so training academically in Java is great, but don't ask me about Groovy or Spring whatever boot that you have, you know, do Spring MVC or whatever they use for their top level programming now because I wouldn't, I wouldn't even be able to help you. <laughs> be like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, there's probably a web page. <laughs> what are most people's motivations for actually getting certified? Yeah, so certification is an awesome way to stand out to get your foot in the door on a resume. So the one thing I'd say, you know, I I do have a bunch of Azure certifications. It behooves me to do that because of being an MCT. Having more, I can train more courses. So each one that I get certified on, I can train them. But you have to be really careful because you could sort, uh, you could very quickly, easily become a paper tiger, meaning, hey, I have all these certifications and you should hire me. But then you get in the door and certifications can be somewhat academic in times. 
you know, going back to what you were saying earlier on technical debt and actually managing projects and such, there's a lot of difference between me building an Azure app service for a demo for training and also just the AZ-204 exam demonstrations, for example, than actually using that to deploy my public-facing website that has to be highly resilient and has to be able to handle failover and make sure that all my logging and notifications are handled correctly. It's good to know the certification takes you into like the upper levels of that. But the person who, and I'll always say this when I'm training people, the person who actually does this in the real world will benefit from that and do much better on the exam than someone who just comes in and does a boot camp and just does the academic top level stuff. Because when you get to the exam, likely you're going to see questions that are going to go deeper that will test your mettle when it comes to how good are you actually at this. Yeah, I remember talking to a trainer years ago. Actually, um, he was an agile trainer, and he was he was telling me that like for him, he he does a couple of years of training and stuff, but then occasionally he has to actually go back and do to actually get into a real project and just basically just get in touch with kind of like what it's like to actually be working on real real world stuff, you know. Um, and I think that's probably especially important for something like agile, you know. Mm-hmm. So a lot of judgment involved there. So. Yeah. And then just going back a little bit to what Sean said, I kind of didn't answer the full question about why taking the certification. So other than just, you know, getting your foot in the door, typically having certification does give you leverage for higher salary. Also, again, makes you uh, positioned to do other things. So for example, let's say that you decided you wanted to go for MCT, Microsoft Certified Trainer, so that you could actually be a trainer. In order to get that you first have to get the certification. So there might be a motivation there to say, hey, this is on my long-term plan. And to get through these first couple steps, I want to do that. The other thing, and this has been a big thing for me as well, is having these certifications and then getting in the community more with that and just kind of offering up some trainings here and there for things like, or doing things like this podcast, right? Being involved in the community that way. It also helps me when I apply to speak at a conference, for example, CodeMash or KCDC or that conference or, you know, the bigger ones, if I could get in, potentially um, I might stand out amongst the, the people that are actually submitting to talk just because I have credentials, right? And so that might be a motivation too. So it could be anything from just promotions or higher salary, professional development of your own accord, you know, going on to MCT or being conference speaker or community contributor with the credentials to back what you're doing. Uh, Maybe get rid of some of the imposter syndrome, perhaps. So for somebody that's only been developing for, you know, maybe a couple of years or not, they don't have any certification, anything like that. What should they look at as a place to get started? Oh, great question. So what I would recommend for anyone would be to start with AZ-900. So AZ-900 is an exam that's on the fundamentals of Azure, but typically the, the, the stuff that you're learning in that fundamentals is critical to have that underlying knowledge, whether you're going to go AZ-104 for the admin path or AZ-204 for the developer path. When you go through the AZ-900, it's usually like a one-day course. And in fact, I think Microsoft has a lot of materials out there for free already on the AZ-900 level. And a lot of people are typically kind of using that as an entry-level training events as well. So you might look for some free training around the AZ-900. But ultimately, there are some really great pieces of information in that fundamentals training that knowing that will help you when it comes to the more technical questions in the harder exams. And I'm not saying harder like AZ-900 is not an easy exam. It's not trivial. In fact, I was very arrogant when I went to take the AZ-900 exam thinking, oh, it's just a fundamentals. It'll be easy. And boy, was I sweating that one because I was like, wow, this is a lot 
more technical than I thought it would be. I, I kind of thought it was going to be more for a business-oriented user, and they were just going to ask you know general questions about what's an Azure App Service or how do I set up a, a VM? Okay, well those stuff that stuff's pretty pretty basic, but no, the AC900 takes you to the levels of here's what a data center structure is kind of like, and here's how we re- do regions, and then within regions these are region pairs where you have geographic failovers and things like that. So even setting yourself up to be an admin or setting yourself up to be a developer and understanding the basics of how Microsoft has set up for resiliency amongst their data centers and and bringing that. And then on top of that, the cost, the cost planning, cost management, and understanding how you can compute what's it going to cost me if I put this app service into play or if I build up this really massive VM, is it really going to cost me $250 a month to run this? Yes, if you leave it on 24-7. But if you shut it off, you can actually save yourself $70 or something a month. You know, So if I want a nice developer machine in the cloud, I can spin up a VM. It's pretty powerful, you know, four or eight cores or, you know, eight or 16 gigs of memory, 100 and something dollars a month to 200 and something dollars a month as far as their cost. But then if you shut it off on the weekends and you auto script it to shut off at night, so in case you forget when you go home from work, it actually can save you a little bit of money there. So it's not as much, but you learn all, you learn a lot of of that basic stuff kind of in the fundamentals and then take that into the next levels. So that's definitely where I would start. Leave it to Microsoft to use the high number for the intro course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but at least they're consistent, right? I mean, all of them are 900 now. So we have AI 900, AZ 900, and then you have like uh, the SC 900, which is the security path now. So all of those 900s are the fundamentals. But yeah. But not 90. Yeah. Or 101, you know? (laughs) Yeah. One would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, 101. Well, they did have a 101. Actually, that was the AZ 101. And the, yeah, what's really been interesting to me is like they, they've had a multiple, multiple times they've had exams that were two exams that they've then now brought down into one. So like 300, 301 became 303, 100, 101 became 102 or whatever, and then 104 ultimately. So they, they kind of condense them and, and make them into this uh, all-encompassing exam. And uh, yeah, so, but, but yeah, SC 900, AZ 900, AI 900, they're all at the top level or the big number is the basic, but you can always go out to the Azure poster too and and see what what the exams look like there too. So, so I've done a couple of the um the fundamental ones actually. I think my biggest I wouldn't say even criticism, but I've done all of some of those free courses. Like I did the I think the Dynamics three six five one, and I think the the, the biggest thing was, was how much marketing material is in there. I just I could mm. hardly keep away. It was just this really long. It's like a day-long infomercial, basically, for, for Microsoft products, you know. So <laughs> the Azure one was a little bit better, though, because okay. there was a, I feel, there, there was a lot of fundamental stuff. But I remember the dynamic stuff was just, it was just so boring. Like, <laughs> I could hardly get through it, so. Yeah, I've, I've not done the business, the business path, the Dynamics 365, or even the Microsoft 365, so I can't speak to that, unfortunately, but I'll take your word for it. I think that it. one is more more targeted towards like decision makers and managers yeah. and all that stuff. That real one nearly is. So. The Azure one, because yeah, the Azure one did focus a lot more on pricing, I thought, which is really good because you know, that is one of the things you need to start thinking about when you move to the cloud, isn't it? So. Yeah, and on that note, like, can we just like take a moment to say kudos to Microsoft for like giving us some some credits on Azure now or letting people in for free? Because I remember when it first started out, it was like, I want to try your Azure product, but it's like, I don't want to pay anything to try to be a developer in Azure. So how do I do that? And it was kind of like, well, there's not really a path for that unless you had like the maybe the enterprise level subscription at the time or something. But they've really mm-hmm. done a great job of, of opening the door for all developers, both going open source with the .NET Core path. And then also, but yeah, we don't want to make this a Microsoft commercial either. So that'd be enough for that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, e- even their Microsoft Learn stuff yeah. are, are pretty good. I love Microsoft Learn a lot. Again, I think there's a couple things that could be done a little a little differently as far as the organization, in my personal opinion, but they've done a great job. If, if you go out to the AZ-204 exam, for example, let's say you wanted to take that and you're ready to start taking that that exam. At the bottom of the official documentation, there's a list of learn modules. And you can put those into a collection within your own profile. Or you can, I have a full collection of AZ-204 modules that I could share the link and everybody could just go to that. But it's just as easy for you to build your own. And of course, it tracks your progress, gives you rewards, trophies, you know, a little gamification of your progress, which is fun. But again, my one caution would say, and I guess I'll step back one more second. The, the other thing they do nicely there is they often will give you a sandbox. So if there, it doesn't always happen. It depends on the module, but sometimes I'd say 50% of the time or better now, if they want you to do something in Azure, they'll side by side right there in Microsoft Learn, give you a sandbox to use for two hours. You get 10 of them a day. And it's, it'd be pretty hard to use more than 10 in a day. You'd have to be in a really intense study session because typically a learn module is going to take you about an hour to go through the entire seven steps or eight steps or 12 steps or whatever it is, sometimes even more. And if you're adding in, you know, I'm working through Azure on this, you know, that's 10 or 12 hours of studying that you probably could do with Azure Pass, you know, not Azure Passes, but the eight sandbox that they give you right there and learn. But again, the whole idea is this is still kind of like the the learn content is let's get acquainted with what these things are. So if you go to the app service, it'll be like, this is how you create an app service with the AZCLI command, you know, AZ web app create or whatever you need to, to type. And then you'll type it right there and, and you'll do it. And that's great because that does give you that that typical skilling that you need. And, and when you go to take an exam, if you were to see a question around some of the actual commands, you might be able to have had that practical experience with it, at least seeing it. But again, it's not something nobody's memorizing all the AZCLI commands, especially since you can look them up. So the best way I'd say, you know, not only those learn modules, that's a great starting point, but they're if you could get yourself into a practical project around a technology, especially when you're weaker on and actually hit some roadblocks that you have to fight through, that's going to make your exam go much more succinctly for you. Typically for me anyway, because I, I say, oh, yeah, I, I remember this being a, a thing that trips me up or something. So mm. so after you do the uh, the 900 course, mm-hmm. you then ha- kind of have to pick a path, and, um, figure out which way you want to go. Oh, you don't have to. And actually, you don't even need the 900 exam. That's an optional exam. But again, I just recommend it because of the fact that it pu- it puts that foundational stuff, which has shown up. It depends a lot on where you go from there. But if let's say you wanted to be a system admin or security or developer, those are kind of the three main paths within the Azure space. The and then AI, of course. But I kind of I kind of rope in AI with developer, honestly, because I feel like there's a lot more you're using some of the same tools and maybe at a much deeper level scientifically, but ultimately it's still kind of a development job when you're doing scientific data work. But there's the admin path. So if we start there, I'd take the AZ104 next, which is the admin administrator. And the cool thing now is the solutions architect, which is kind of the expert. So in case you're not aware of this, there's a fundamental level, there's an associate level, and there's an expert level in your certifications. And so for an Azure developer or administrator, there are two different expert levels that you can get to. One of them is the the solutions architect and the other is the DevOps architect or DevOps expert, excuse me. So for the admin path, you would take the AZ-104. And in the past, you had to take two more exams to get the solutions architect. But as of just recently, 
they've released 305 into beta. And so it will be 104 plus 305 to be a solutions architect going forward, which is oh, really, really, yeah. So, yeah, and that's really cool. The AZ-303 exam that was part of it was, uh, it was actually one of my favorite exams. So I'm kind of bummed that's going away. But the 104 and the 303 typically had a lot of the same kind of content. The 303 went a little deeper, I think, probably, and not really speaking to to that too much. But ultimately, the AZ-104, I think, is a really great baseline. And then the, the 305 on top of that will be more what you did in the 304, I think. Just, But I think they've also added in there two things about like the cloud adoption framework and well-architected framework that they want to kind of have people who design and actually implement high-level technical specs on what you're going to do in Azure to understand what Microsoft's recommended approaches are to migrating solutions or, you know, getting into the cloud versus, and then also once you're in the cloud, you know, you have this, the cloud adoption framework, you have this widespread, this is what we're doing for all of our stuff in the cloud. And then you have the well-architected framework, which says, okay, let's take one specific application and how do we make that work the best we possibly can in the cloud? So if they've changed the structure of the exam, like, you know how they got that thing where like, if you, like if you've already got the certification, then mm-hmm. like I think like after twelve months they make you do like a Microsoft Learn course to to keep back certification instead of having to do the exam again. Yeah. What I what would happen for me if I've already done the three or four on and the three or three? You know, that's an interesting but, question because that's going to happen to me too. So I'm guessing that you'll just have to re up on some plan, whether it's the three or five or just the architect path at that point. I hope they won't make me go back and take a 305, but I don't know for sure. I'll have to I'll have to look into that. That's a really interesting question because I just assumed I would be able to renew at the 305 level. But yeah. You think it'd be the majority of people would be in that boat, right? Yeah. Given the fact you've just announced it, so, you know. <laughs> right. And yeah, and you're absolutely right. I bet there's tens of thousands of people that would be like, yeah, I, I don't want to go take the 305 now. I'll just let my stuff expire if they don't let you mm. do it. But that's an interesting point. The renewal is a really great process, right? It's now free. I believe you just go to, you get your notification that says, hey, you your certification is about to expire. Go to Microsoft Learn. And I think you have an unlimited amount of attempts to pass it. And then, but you do have a limited amount of time to renew. So you would need to go out there and do it. But you don't have to go take retake the exam now. That's fantastic. But yeah. I think so, it's a reflection of Microsoft's, like, you know how like, it used to be that like, these courses were like kind of like, bit of a cash cow for them whereas now they just want you to learn as much as possible because they know that if you know azure mm-hmm. you're going to want to recommend azure to your employer and that's where they make their money so yeah that's an interesting thought because i do feel like they have definitely shifted on their courses as far as like making things available like you're saying this whole microsoft learn ecosystem has been a great revolution for people trying to get into the cloud mm. Yeah. So the 104.305, that's going to be your admin path. As a developer, you could start with the 204. You don't have to do the 900. Again, I'd recommend the 900, then the 204. And the 204 is going to be a pretty rigorous exam around the technical aspects of development job. You may see some some coding stuff on there. I've seen a couple of questions come in, you know, is there going to be a lot of coding? And I would say if you can't code, if you haven't been in an actual real world coding job for probably at least a year, it might be a big struggle for you. 
just because you're you're not going to have to know how to write an entire system, but you will need to probably have. I mean, with a developer exam, you're you should expect to 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 have some sort of questions around development aspects with the work. Whether that's you know, I don't want to I don't want to say too much about what could possibly be on the exam. Um, ultimately, just be be ready to sort through some code and and determine which code would be the most accurate and not not necessarily always just the most the right answer because there could be you know six ways to do something but the way that would get you the results they're looking for so i always advise people to double check reread your questions because there may be some little nuance to the question that's like this is why this choice is made available over this choice or whatever yeah and then after the 204 that's really the end path for a developer as far as what you would need to do to have the base level certification from there you can actually go into the 400 to get the DevOps expert. You can also go from the 104 to the 400. My personal recommendation for you is if you want to get the DevOps expert, you should not just rely on the 204 and the 400. You should try to get the 104 as well because there are a lot of things about administration, around networks, around if you're going to be automating deployments, you need to understand the ecosystem at Azure like how, like a simple thing, like I can't deploy a resource to a VNet that isn't in the same region. So like if I try to deploy a VM from the West US into a, a VNet in the East US, that's not going to work. You don't really learn that as a developer. You learn how to do a deployment of a VM. But when you go to that, you know, that 400 level of the, of the actual DevOps, I'm not saying that something like that would ever be on the exam, but knowing that that's there is going to help you if they're ever to say something's failing, you know, maybe they present some scenario, something's failing and and this could be a potential reason. So just what I'm trying to say through all that is ultimately, even if you don't take the 104 or pass it, if you go through some of the learn modules on that and get yourself familiar with that before you take the 400, I think it would, it would do you a great service to prepare for that one. There's also IoT uh, developer specialist, and then there's SAP developer specialist, and uh, and there's also a Windows virtual desktops de- uh, specialist. So you have some specializations as well that you could go for in addition to your 104 or your 204. So perhaps maybe you want to do 204 and 220, which is 220 is the IoT exam. And if you're a developer and you're not doing IoT, look into it. It's really fun. <laughs> it's fun to play around with, even if you don't ever get to use it in the real world. So. Mm. Time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software, and our friends at Raygun are here to help. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of the errors, crashes, and front-end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Set thresholds for your alert based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment, along with custom filters that give you even greater control. Assign multiple users to ensure the right team members are notified with alerts linked directly to the issue in Raygun, taking you to the root cause faster. Never miss another mission-critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customer peace of mind. Visit raygun.com to learn more. Their simple usage plans start from as little as $4 per month, with unlimited apps and users. That's raygun.com to start your free 14-day trial. I think for me, the biggest, when I tried to pass these courses, the best thing I did was just, I know you got those like sandboxes and all that stuff, but just get a pay-as-you-go account and just spin up one of those, just spin up all the all the 
the concepts and just try to do it because you, you can do it now in, in the cloud. You know, that's one of the beauty about the cloud is that you can just spin things up really quickly and you can do it through code. And then at the end of the day, just kill it. You know, I think I, I, I did all those courses. I probably only spent like 50 US dollars on them, you know, just, just sure. doing, doing things like that. So, yeah. And I mean, honestly, if you've never had an Azure account, you can get the 12 months free with mm-hmm. a certain yeah. number of services. So you could play around with it that way. And then if you're, if you're in an organization of any size and you have licenses, Visual Studio Professional, I think, comes with a $50 a month credit. Mm. Visual Studio Enterprise is $150 a month. So you can sign up through your enterprise subscription. Now, the limitations on that are going to be there. That if, if you're under a big org and you have a subscription, they may lock it down. Like you may not have the rights you need to, to play around as much because they might be like, well, this is typically on our, this is a person on our Azure tenant. We don't want them being able to just go deploy something that we don't want to pay for. Even if it's on your your $150, they might have locked it down by policy through all of the subscriptions somehow and corporate mm-hmm. things can block you a little bit. So that's the one caveat to those, but it is a nice way to play around with most of the services if you can. So you mentioned the, the different levels. So you take these uh, exams, And then how do you get to like the expert level that you talked about? Yeah, uh, great question. So we started at the the fundamentals. And then so the 104 and the 204 are going to be your associate exams. And then the 305 and the 400 are going to be your expert exams. So you basically just pass the exam and that's typically you say I'm the 204 associate developer associate or the 400 Azure expert or whatever, 305 expert, whatever, solutions architect expert, whatever you want to call it. So okay, so there's not another level for a developer to to get expert. They don't want to go into DevOps or right something like that. Yeah, not at the current time, but you have those specializations. So there's the the AZ220. So you can say I'm a developer plus IoT, and I think I think this is public knowledge. I think they're let me double check something really. We quick. won't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also some data administrative stuff. Yeah, okay. So I just wanted to make sure um, some of this stuff was out there, but. I feel like it's it's out there. So anyway, there's there's definitely some database stuff as well. So like the DP path. So there's data there's data our data administrator. So if you were back in the day and you took some of the SQL Server admin tests in the MCSD path originally, there's a DP three hundred which is extremely similar in that content level. So if you're the person that is out there deploying databases onto a typical on-prem network and you're responsible for all the backups and all the scheduling and different things with uh, tuning your your queries and making sure people aren't overloading the server with ridiculous like table scans and things like that, those types of things are covered in the DP300. So you can get the database administrator associate as well on that. And then... There's also like a DP100, which I think is AI data or something, and DP200, which is another uh, data, like for the big data analysis. So if you're in the big data world, that'd be like your, you know, your Kafka's and your Azure Synapse data warehousing things. If you're in those, the DP200 would be your flavor. So in addition to your developer exam, you could also get the database administrator or the database or the data, whatever they're called out there. And I think also there's going to be some entry-level ones coming on those as well. So like there's going to be some simpler exams as far and the simpler, not in, in terms of technical difficulty, simpler and more focused on things like this is uh, going to be specifically for SQL queries or something like T-SQL. So I think there's going to be some exams coming on those too. Um, hopefully those are out there soon. Do you find, like, you know, like you've taken so many exams, do you find, mm-hmm. like, and, and maybe even your training course 
touches on it, I guess, that there's kind of like a Microsoft way to pass these exams that you kind of, it's almost like a skill set that you, you get better at. Just because I found that like, like I found that going through, because I've done a couple of these exams, um, and as I got to the more expert level ones, like the Art Solution Architect ones, they actually became like easier. But I think it was mainly because there was maybe a little bit of overlap between those different courses. But also I kind of figured out kind of how to answer the questions properly like or, or, the, or the Microsoft way yeah so this is a really interesting question because back in the day like the original exams when we were the original MCSDs and the the original MCSEs or whatever MCSAs whatever you were going for there was typically a this is the Microsoft way and then this is how it actually works in the real world so you would go to take the exam and you wouldn't necessarily know the answer because Microsoft had a specific way to implement it, but you've never actually done that in the real world. You'd actually done something else that worked. Um, and I'm not saying Microsoft's way didn't work. What I'm saying is they, they just had an expected way to do that. And where I'm going with this is that has gone away. So the nice thing about this is when you go to take the exams, typically you're not going to run into something that is so obscure or obtuse that you've never heard of it or seen it. And so even going into the first exam, you should have a fairly general idea of the tools and technologies that you would be presented to know about. And it's not going to be like some obscure process that you would have never heard of or would never do that in the real world because of some reason. So that's good. Now, back to your question about how does it get easier and is there a Microsoft way? So what I would say to that is just like anything, if you're taking, let's say you wanted to be a math professor or math major at a a university and you started out, typically what you're going to find is your freshman level and your sophomore level courses are extremely intense and hard and basically almost what people would call weed out courses, right? After you get through that weed out, the 300 level math is hard, but you have kind of a system or you know what you're doing. And at that point, the course, even though it's technically difficult, it may even seem easier. So Calc 3 might, somebody from Iowa State's going to kill me for this because they're like, no way, dude. But Calc 3 <laughs> might feel easier than Calc 1. Just because mm-hmm. you've already gone through 1 and 2, you've built your own metal in your head, right? You're ready to go for these things. You, you have a, a proven positive plan of attack. You know that if you spend eight hours a week working on your calculus, that when you go to take the exam, it's just going to flow. And so that's a good analogy. Yeah. yeah. So coming into the higher level courses at Azure, what you said also is incredibly important, the overlap. And that's why I go all the way back and say, get the deep or the AZ 900, because that, that fundamentals, that fundamentals course is going to give you some stuff that will, by default, exist in the other levels, even if they don't show up as a question on the exam, just having it there. So you'll start building that metal of understanding, and then there will be some crossover because now I've done this. And then, you know, what I've seen is that, you know, you get the 104 and the 204, and all of a sudden you're kind of positioned for both the 304 or 305 and the 400 because you have the admin and the developer side of the ecosystem. So you've seen it from both angles and Again, you've built out that structure in your mind of like, this is where, this is what the cloud proposed solution should look like. And you kind of can take that and then use that to make the best estimate on a question, even if you don't necessarily know the answer. Like, well, this doesn't, you, you can at least do the, you know, the 50% where the two of the question, two of the answers don't even make sense because you know enough about the stuff to be dangerous or whatever. 
So how much time should someone uh, expect to invest into prepping and, and testing and all that kind of stuff for each certification? Yeah. So, well, just just uh, to, to take one step back from that, the exam itself is three hours. It's two hours of basic testing and an hour or two and a half hours of test testing pretty much. But it's half hour of other things on top of that, like questions and surveys. So, And they offer that remotely now, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the best thing that's ever happened to us. If, if one good thing came out of COVID other than remote work, it's remote Azure exams. <laughs> because if you can get yourself a nice place that's quiet and doesn't have a lot of stuff on the desk, like a co-work space, I rent an office and go take my exam in the middle of the night and nobody is there and it's quiet. And yeah, you can do your exam and you don't have to go to a center anymore. You I'm always paranoid that my kids might run in the room and I might get disqualified. <laughs> that's exa- that is a huge, I, yeah, that's a huge concern for me too because they are very, uh, you're moderated the whole time and you have mm-hmm. you have to have your camera on and you can't basically leave the screen. So if I go over here, they might be like, what are you doing over there? The one thing I don't like about remote exams versus the end center is you don't get any scratch paper. So like <laughs> in, a, in an exam center, you got a, an eraser board so that you could actually write your stuff down as you were going and think, oh, yeah, that, that's useful for a number of reasons. But without that, it's kind of harder. And, and the other thing is you can't talk out loud. And sometimes I find myself reading questions out loud to try to understand it better. I'm like, mm-hmm. I you think know, it's there's someone in the room listening. With, I don't know, like. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it can be really tricky, too, because like I had a window behind me in the office I was in, and it was very bright. And mm-hmm. they thought someone could see in. And they don't want anybody seeing in to see the exam, which is perfectly reasonable. So I had to make sure the curtain, I showed them the curtain was down and I'm like, okay, mm. so it's good. But Apparently yeah. when I take my exam, I, um, I cover my house, my, my mouth up a lot. I guess when I'm thinking or something like that, because a few times I've been That's doing the exam and then some guys, they put on the chat, can you, you know, can I see your mouth? <laughs> like, basically. So. Yeah. Well, you know, your secret agent, yeah. question, <laughs> yeah. question number 42 talks about the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, but what I would say is you can get a lot done in an hour a night. So I studied I studied some entrepreneurial stuff a while back. And one of the things that stuck with me from that course was this thing that they called the 20-mile march. And so I don't know if you've heard this story. I think it's in somebody's famous book, but I don't know who it is, so I can't give them credit here. Um, and the person who was relating it to me, I don't think gave it credit. So if they did, I've forgotten who they credited it to. But ultimately, there's a story about expeditions to the South Pole. And there's two teams and the two teams are going to try to reach the South Pole. And one team says, I'm going to go as far as I can, as hard as I can on days where there's nice weather and on days where it's not nice weather, I'm just not going to do anything. We're just going to stay home, hunker down, wait for the storm to pass. The other team says, we're going to go 20 miles a day, no matter what, every day. And the team that makes it to the South Pole is the team that goes 20 miles every day. And the team that didn't go 20 miles every day, everybody died. So my, my saying to that is the best thing you can do for yourself is put the exam on your calendar and say, I am going to take this exam on, let's say it's December now. So let's say, give yourself two months or so and say, I'm going to take this exam in March, March 15th. Okay. looks good. Find something on the calendar and buy it. And here's the thing. You can change it. If something comes up, if it, you know, if life happens, you can go out there within 48 hours of the exam. I think you have to give it, I think you up to 24 hours, maybe. I think after 24 hours, you have to bite the bullet. But up to 48 hours, you can move it. You can go back and say, I need to reschedule this. You just go back out to Pearson and reschedule it as easy as it can be. I rescheduled my 
AZ 500 exam probably 15 times because that exam mm-hmm. scared the living daylights out of me and it was not an easy exam by any means and i was glad i rescheduled it because i just didn't have time to study for it i didn't do the 20 mile march but going back to that okay let's put it on the calendar let's say we got eight weeks five hours a week that's 40 hours okay i'm going to commit to doing one hour a night five days a week and yeah that's tough because that means you can't binge your favorite show on netflix or you can't you can't spend some time with the kids here or there whatever it might be obviously don't hurt your family doing this thing but you know (laughs) Everybody died on the race just because there was too many bad days. Yeah. If it was all sunny days, they would have won. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, that's, I mean, and then just, just committing to it and being like, you know what, whether you're, if you're an early riser, get up an hour earlier. If you're a late person, stay up an hour later and drink an extra Mountain Dew during the day. I'm the worst life coach ever, but anyway, I'm saying you can do it. And, and uh, yeah, if you give yourself maybe eight weeks, an hour, five hours a week, so 40 hours to go through the learn material and just kind of prepare yourself. Take a practice exam. If you if you buy a practice exam, you can get those from Measure Up or whatever. And they're, I think, $100 per exam. And that can get your mind a little bit set for the questions too. But Yeah, on the old the old MCSE tests and things like that, I really found the, the practice exam most valuable because you kind of learn how they word questions and try to find out, you know, often there's a lot of ambiguity in, in these things. And you're not sure. Uh, but once you kind of see that in practice exams, mm-hmm. it kind of helps you out. Yeah. And the same thing along the lines of there's been a number of times on a practice exam where a question came up and one of the answers was something I'm like, I'm not sure what that is, honestly. And so then you the, the strategy around that is, OK, well, let's say, you know, let's say you were talking about application insights and it said, what's live metrics? And I'm I'm like, I've never heard of this. Then I go to Microsoft Docs and I look up application insights and I read about the thing that I didn't know about. And that that action right there is enough. If I see that on the on the exam, maybe if I can remember what I read, that it definitely helps you. <laughs> so why mentioned uh, uh, your courses? You want to tell us a little bit about those? Yeah. So so I've been a technical trainer now for just about, just about a year and a half. And I have done a lot of AZ-204s, uh, a lot of AZ-900s, and, and, uh, and like DP-900. I'm leading some stuff for that next week for Microsoft. It's really cool. Um, and the overall structure of these certification trainings is really great, specifically for the certification. But there are a number of drawbacks to it that I found through training multiple times. First of all, who has 40 hours in one week to give to training and doesn't get IMs or emails or your boss called because we have a sudden client meeting that we have to do or production's down? So you're paying you know, an exorbitant amount of money, which is anything more than $100 is exorbitant in my mind. So you're paying a decent amount of money and you get pulled away for half a day. Well, what did you miss during that time? Well, maybe you missed some critical lecture on a topic that you needed to hear, or perhaps you missed a lab. If you're lucky, you missed a lab because you could go back and do that on your own later if you can commit the time to it. But still, what I've also found, not only do you get pulled away or do you have an inability to commit to a full five days on your calendar. Some of them are only four days, but a lot of them are five days. But three days in, you're like brain dead. It's like information overload and just, I'm so tired of hearing him talk. I just can't do it again. And and you Or then you start multitasking. Maybe you're checking your email or, oh, it's lab time. You know what? I'm going to do that lab later because my email is behind. So I'm going to do that now. And plus, I need I need a break from this stuff anyway. And then by Thursday or Friday, it's just like, you're just, wow, 
uh, it's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely know what you're talking about. Yeah, and everything's at a group pace. Yeah, so it's, yeah, yeah. That's another good point. I never really thought about that. You're you're at the you're at the the pace of a group. Now that's twofold problematic because some people that's too slow. And so many times there's one person or two people we're waiting on them to complete the lab. And so everybody else is just like, come on, can we go on to the next topic? And you still, you know, you're still waiting on those two people to do the lab. But it's also those two people who maybe had never been exposed to Azure and got told they were taking this training now are diving deep and they're like losing their minds because it's so hard. So, yeah. So you get this dichotomy of professional levels of, of knowledge and it can, it can really wreck the training for a lot of people. So my idea around this was, okay, well, first of all, there's a lot of crossover, like why I said, between if I go for these exams, I only need a little bit more on top of that for this other exam. For example, once I get the 104 and the 204, the, the 400 becomes a lot easier. Not not saying it's easy. That's probably the hardest exam I ever took, but maybe the SC500 was, or the AZ500 was tougher. Those two are tough exams. But ultimately, once I have the 104 and the 204, there isn't a lot new about networking that's going to be showing up in what was the 303 because it's still networking and it's still private networks and it's still network addresses and here's my ranges and here's my subnets and this is how it works and it's not going to change between those two exams. Okay, let's learn it once and let's get it used to get down with it and we're ready to do that on any exam. Same thing with a developer. Once I, once I learn how to do an app service and you'd be surprised how much crossover there is at least for a 104 person into the developer is a little less from the developer into the 104 because of the fact that the developer is much more focused on putting projects out there in kind of a development space. But the administrator still has to know how to provision an Azure container instance. They still have to know how to run Azure Kubernetes just like a developer does. So the 104 exam and the 204 exam Going from 204 to 104 is much harder than 104 to 204. And the only only caveat to that is coming from the 104 to the 204 is that development piece. So if you know how to be a developer, if you're if you know how to develop code, at least enough to be dangerous, you've been doing it for about a year, and you kind of understand network architecture at the you know basic level, this is my server, this is my database, they communicate via TCP protocol. Port 1433, I just have to have that open in my network service gateway. Okay, great, I'm good. And all of a sudden, you find these crossovers. So my idea was, why are we spending four days or five days on these two exams when ultimately material is complementary in some of them? And there's a lot of crossover. Now, there's there are some differences and there are some times like for my training one week, you know, first couple of weeks, we we home in on some of the admin stuff. I feel like that's the base level. That's where you really want to start. And once you have the understanding of kind of a little bit about basic network architecture, even then moving into the developer stuff is just kind of like, OK, so now if I want to make a private link, oh, I understand what that means because I've already worked through networking. So I know what it means to have a private network and deploy my Azure App Service into a private network. Whereas if you're just coming as a developer, you're like, what the heck does that even mean? What's a private network? What is and so the idea was, okay, let's let's eliminate some of these problems. First of all, 90% of the work is actually going to be you on your own, just like if you were doing it on your own, okay? I'm going to take you through some live demos and some official Microsoft material, and we'll do that for two hours a week. And I would have liked to do four hours a week, but what we found is that two hours a week is much easier to work into everyone's schedule. And it goes about 18 weeks long. And with that, during that time, I get you access to the Microsoft material, all the labs, and I get one voucher 
for the exam. And then I think I'm actually going to add in a couple of practice tests, especially based on stuff we were just saying today, just stuff I've heard from the current trainees and what we just kind of reiterated on today, the, the importance of that practice exam. So I think that'll be in there. You have all of that. We do a specific curriculum for the week. And then you have, I have listed out different learn modules you can go through to enhance it the labs that you should work through, and then also just sometimes some other Microsoft documentation. There's also a secret weapon in my, my training that I add in, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell you about it here because it's free anyway, and it's, so I don't know. I, I hate kind of sharing this little these little tidbits, but I actually I don't hate. To, I, I would love it if it helps you out. So there's a thing called the Microsoft Cloud Workshop, and you can find these uh, if you go to Microsoft Cloud Workshop, and there are practical examples to work through different things. There's a whiteboarding session that you can do, and then there's an actual hands-on lab you can do. And with those, in addition to your knowledge, so remember I was saying earlier about the academic piece of the puzzle, the the, the Microsoft Official Courseware and the Microsoft Learn, combine those things together, you're going to be academically set. And that's most, uh, a lot of developers, academically set is good enough, honestly, because there so many developers can just read things and know what they need to do or understand it. Me, I'm a practical person. I need to be hands-on. I need to actually work through it. And these Microsoft Cloud Workshops give me that extra leverage, I think. Once you do a couple of those on top of the training, all of a sudden you're like, okay, now when I go take the exam, I'm much more confident. And typically, the Cloud Workshops don't work out of the box, at least not for me, which means I have to fight through some things. And all of a sudden, that's even better. It takes more time, which is a little frustrating because I'm like, just let me get done with this. But in the end, you learn so much more. And then you go take the exam and you're like, okay, this makes sense. So that's kind of where it's at. Very cool. Very cool. So um, we'll put the uh, link to your website in the show notes if people want to check it out. Or they can go to, what is it? Uh, Training.MajorGuidanceSolutions.com? That's correct. All right. Good. Good. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add about uh, certifications, things like that, that we haven't covered? Uh, yeah. I think we covered most of the, the main points. Again, just, just remember that if you... If you don't know the path, that you can always reach out to someone who does, or you can just look at the Microsoft poster. So just look for Azure Certification Poster on a Google search, and you should be able to find, and you can see there's paths for Azure, for M365, for the BI world, and then um, there's a security path now. So there's five different paths out there that they have all the exams that are available for you. The other thing I would do is find cloud advocates on LinkedIn. And by that, I mean like you're Thomas Maurer and a couple of the other ones. Thomas is is my personal favorite because he posts like 800,000 things that are important to what I've been studying for on the exams. But ultimately, he's got study guides for all the exams. So a bunch of linked documents and such. So that's been a huge resource for me as well, just to go out there and see what the cloud advocates from Microsoft themselves are posting. So if you find them on LinkedIn and uh, they'll be posting daily or you know, weekly content that definitely can help you. So Awesome. Well, I think we're just about out of time, so I'm going to move us into picks. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session 
where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go, and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So why, what's your pick for this week? Okay, just through the Black Friday sales. So I'm not sure if you guys know, but I get really bad, like, hay fever. I'm not sure if you guys get it in America. It's just like it's out, allergies. Oh, yeah. Just in the I, I do it really. Yeah, I take I take a Claritin D every day. So it's crazy. Yeah, well, it's, it's gone to a point where it stopped kind of working for me. I've just recently bought like an air purifier. It's a Xiaomi. I think it's just called the Xiaomi air purifier 3h or something and yeah now it's just in my living room and yeah so far so good i haven't really had any days where i'm um, like sometimes it gets so bad for me that i've literally just got to like go to my room lie in bed for like the whole day because i can't i can barely open my eyes kind of thing so i mean i've only bought it for a week but haven't had those days yet so what i'd give that as my pick today so yeah grasses are, are definitely the worst for me you know I, for years i wore a mask whenever i mow the lawn oh yeah only until last year now I don't look so weird. I'm just I'm out there wearing a mask. Yeah. Now everybody's like, too. you know, you don't need to wear your mask when you're outside. <laughs> Actually, let me tell you about that. Yeah, I'm on board with that. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So um, my pick this week is actually uh, season three of Lost in Space mm-hmm. on Netflix. So I really enjoyed season one and two, and they finally released season three, which actually is going to be, sadly, the final year, unless they decide it's not the final year anymore so you know, hopefully there's enough fan call back call out or whatever some for some sort of spin off or something after this season because i i've really enjoyed all all three seasons of course i like the old show from way back in the in the day so that's uh always good for me so if you like uh lost in space check it out season three on netflix cool yeah all right brian do you have a, a pick yeah so man that made it tough for me because now i have two can i share two Oh, yeah. Okay. So the first one I want to share is called Smack. So this is a thing that I think somebody's doing out of town here. But ultimately, these cards, they're these little cards. I don't know if if you'll be able to see these or not. They come in a little box. It's called Smack. And ultimately, it's sending messages of affirmation, compassion, and kindness. Uh, Unfortunately, my X-Split VCAM is not making it very easy to see that. But ultimately, this one's for couples. can't see it either. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So anyway... There's these little carts. They're like four by five squares and they have all kinds of stuff on them. So like this one's for couples. And let me tell you, as a guy, giving one of these to your wife can go a long way or giving one to your kids or some for kids. But you know, like this one says, I'll love you till the end. And it's just a little four by four card. You just put it on the bed or whatever. Or, you know, you're kind of sort of basically pretty much always on my mind. You know, little things like that. So sending messages of affirmation, compassion, and kindness called smack cards. And you made me think of leverage redemption as well. So if you are a leverage fan at all, or if you weren't a leverage fan, leverage is an awesome show and they've done a great job with that show through the years and it got canceled and then it won a bunch of awards for people's choice awards. And then, uh, they just recently brought it back on IMDb. So it's free to watch on IMDb. Unfortunately, you have to have the commercials, um, but you can watch it through Amazon Prime on IMDb. And it is such a fun show. And there's some stuff about hacking. So, you know, we can we can go with maybe that's not possible or maybe that is possible or maybe they did a really good job there. But it's always this kind of like, it's like a heist mystery show where they're like these, they're basically trying to get leverage against the bad guy to redeem a situation where the bad guy treated someone poorly. And so it's always got, you know, these these fun little messages and, and things that they do throughout them. So Leverage Redemption, it's free to watch. It's kind of my... Hey, so is, is IMDb like a streaming service for you guys? Because it 
for us, it's just like a place, like a website where you go to find what shows of actors have been in, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's both for us. Yeah, uh-huh. it's expanded over the over the years. I think so. They're just they're trying to get you know part of that streaming audience nowadays. So I think huh. not only is it looking up you know movie information, whatever, but also uh, starting to have their own little shows. Yeah. Okay. All right, Brian, so if our listeners have questions and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to uh, reach out? Yeah, two ways. Either hit me up on Twitter, at BL Gorman, or you can go to LinkedIn and Brian L. Gorman. And I'll connect with you on LinkedIn as long as you're not trying to sell me something. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me. And yep, if our listeners want to reach out and get in touch with the show, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know how we're doing, what we can do to improve. They can reach me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. <laughs> Thanks, Y. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. And we'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.